This is News Source 1 Michiana. Elkhart South Bend. Welcome to 2021 Talks, where we are following our democracy in historic times. Giving parents the option to make that decision for themselves will be something that in history we will be glad that we were able to do. Infectious disease doctor Aveta Fuller and other members of an FDA panel voted to approve a lower dose of Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine for children ages 5 to 11. Pharmacological consultant Dr. Beatrice Setnick was among experts who testified Tuesday. She argued that Pfizer has not released data on how the vaccine could spread in the body. The overwhelmingly high likelihood of survival rate of 99.99% in children is not a justification for emergency use. And president and CEO of Meharry Medical College, Dr. James Hildreth, pointed out disparities in the research. I was disappointed that the number of minorities in the Pfizer study was such a small percentage of the total because they bear the brunt of disease and hospitalization. However, Captain Amanda Cohn with the National Center for Immunizations and Respiratory Diseases said the benefits outweigh the risks. To me, the question is pretty clear. We don't want children to be dying of COVID, even if it is far fewer children than adults, and we don't want them in the ICU. The FDA could issue a final decision this week. Meanwhile, a growing number of businesses are calling for the Biden administration to delay its vaccine mandate and testing rules until after the holidays. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration's Emergency Temporary Standard requires the COVID-19 vaccine for workers at businesses with 100 or more employees. D.C.-based employment attorney Scott Hecker told lawmakers that stakeholders should have an opportunity to comment. Nobody has the text of the CTS yet, at least in the regulated community. OSHA has it, OIRA has it. But beyond that, we don't know what's in it. So it's really hard to determine what the cost of testing allocation will be, paid time off requirements, and those are all practical impacts on employers. Roughly 3,500 organizations and businesses have already adopted vaccination requirements. Progressive Democrats are pledging to block a vote on a bipartisan infrastructure bill until a deal is reached on a massive social spending package. Disagreements linger over Medicare expansion, paid family leave, and climate initiatives. Senate Democrats released a new plan Tuesday to help pay for the package that would apply a 15 percent minimum tax on profits for companies pulling in more than $1 billion. Terrorist groups in Afghanistan intend to strike international targets within the next six months. That's according to Defense Department Undersecretary Colin Call. We could see ISIS-K generate that capability in somewhere between 6 or 12 months. I think the current assessments by the intelligence community is that al-Qaeda would take a year or two. Call testified to the Senate Armed Services Committee that 450 American citizens are still in Afghanistan following the U.S. withdrawal. Internal GOP polling finds Republicans leading Democrats on a generic ballot for the first time this cycle. Republicans are carrying independent voters by 8 points and college-educated white voters by 3 points. They tie with Democrats among Hispanic voters. I'm Mary Sherman for Pacifica Network and Public News Service. Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy online at publicnewsservice.org. How does one company get 300,000-plus professionals in 150 countries to work together? With ServiceNow workflows, Deloitte seamlessly connects professionals across the globe on the Now platform. ServiceNow workflows provide Deloitte professionals consistency and agility worldwide, which makes it that much easier for Deloitte to thrive and to adapt to whatever change the marketplace throws their way next. Whatever your business is facing, let's workflow it. Learn more at servicenow.com. Hello, friends and neighbors. Well, Donald Trump is the third person to be impeached, but the only president to be impeached twice. 
But that's not the only way he made history. In the short space of four years, Donald Trump managed to take over the Republican Party, render the Congress useless and ineffective, undermine trust in the electoral process, destroy our relations with foreign allies, make enemies of members of the media, and sow more division among Americans than ever existed before, all the while insisting that he and not Joe Biden won the last election. One favorite target of Donald Trump was California Congressman Adam Schiff, manager of the first impeachment trial, whom Donald Trump called a liar and scum. But Trump's now out of office, and Adam Schiff is still in office. And the good congressman's out with a blockbuster new book on the first impeachment trial, which documents how close we came to losing our democracy under Donald Trump, and might still do so if Trump ever returns to power. His new book is called Midnight in Washington, How We Almost Lost Our Democracy and Still Could, and it is number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Congressman, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the Bill Press Pod. It's great to be with you. And I have to say, congratulations, uh, number one, on publication of your new book, Midnight in Washington, and number two, for making the New York Times number one on the bestseller list. That is uh, pretty exciting, Congressman. Way to go. Well, thank you. Uh, it does have the additional benefit of, I'm sure, driving Donald Trump crazy. <laughs> Which you will hear about for sure. Uh, I definitely want to talk about, but by the way, I must say, um, in my business, I read a lot of political books. Um, most of them are not worth it. Your book is exceptionally very well written, very informative, stock full of good stuff. So um, I, I really want to say great job on the book. Well, thank you very much. That, that means a lot to me, especially coming from someone who is uh, such a talented writer uh, in yourself. So thank you very much. You're very kind. Thanks. And I want to get into the book. Let me ask you uh, first, if I may, Congressman, a couple of questions about items in the news. Steve Bannon, the House of Representatives, voted that he should be held in criminal contempt of Congress. What should Merrick Garland do? What will he do? Well, he should, in my view, uh, promptly bring that before the grand jury. The statute uh, provides the department has a duty to do so. That's a duty that's not always observed. But I think there's good reason to believe that that's exactly what will happen. Uh, the Biden administration repeatedly, including the Justice Department, has made it clear they're not going to assert executive privilege. Uh, they want uh, the January 6th Select Committee to get all the information we need to write a comprehensive report, to write recommendations about protecting the country going forward, that uh, January 6th was no ordinary day in the life of our, of our country. And as the White House said once again in rejecting Trump's claims of executive privilege, uh, the, the unquestioned public interest here is in disclosure. Uh, and so given that Bannon has no grounds to refuse and, and simply failed to show up, uh, I think he'll be prosecuted and should be prosecuted. Why is that so important? It's important in two respects. First, he's a key witness. Uh, this was somebody on January 5th that was predicting that all hell was going to break loose on January 6th, as indeed it did. But uh, more than the fact that he was in communication with the president at that critical time uh, is the fact that if, if the department doesn't move forward, um, it, it just reinforces a message that uh, Congress no longer has any oversight power. Uh, and that uh, certain people are above the law. Uh, you know, if you or I or anyone else got a subpoena to show up in court or before Congress and basically just decided not to, 
um, we would be arrested. There'd be a bench warrant for us. And uh, a court without the power to compel witnesses is no court. A Congress without the power to compel witnesses information is no Congress. It becomes merely a plaything uh, in the hands of an autocrat. So uh, I think it's is as important as getting Bannon's testimony. It's equally important to uh, restore the rule of law and the idea that nobody is above the law. So we're waiting to see what Mary Garland will do with Steve Bannon. As yet, um, the attorney general has done nothing vis-a-vis Donald Trump, although some people point out that his call, just the one call to the secretary of state of Georgia asking him to find 11,780 votes was a clear violation of federal law. Um, some Democrats, to me, have expressed frustration at the attorney general for not already appointing a special prosecutor. Do you share that view? And um, uh, and if so, why hasn't he? Uh, I certainly share the view that um, the president, the former president's conduct um, should be investigated uh, to determine if crimes have been committed, that uh, we can't have a situation where uh, when you are president, you can't be prosecuted. And when you leave office, you can't be prosecuted because that really would make the president um, untouchable. And, and that's a dangerous prospect in the abstract. It's even more dangerous when you consider that Donald Trump is once again running for president. Uh, so I think in particular, uh, and you put your finger on what I think is the most serious allegation that needs investigation, and that's the president's efforts to get the Secretary of State of Georgia to f- essentially fraudulently create 11,780 votes, just the number he would need to meet to beat Joe Biden in Georgia. Uh, because anyone else would have been indicted for that by now. And, you know, whether that requires the appointment of a special prosecutor or can be handled by the Department of Justice itself, uh, I, I haven't really opined on. But I, I do think that that, that uh, potential crime, uh, the indictment uh, in which individual one is already mentioned in the Southern District of New York, uh, Donald Trump was involved in directing and coordinating a campaign fraud scheme. Uh, in which Michael Cohen went to jail and the Justice Department said Michael Cohen should go to jail uh, for his participation in that scheme. So what's the argument that the guy who is directed and is coordinated needs to go to jail, but the guy who did the coordinating and did the directing gets a pass? Um, So I I think all of these uh, issues, and, and if there are more, need to be worked up by the Justice Department, and then the Attorney General can make the decision uh, whether the best interests of the country are prosecuting a former president or not prosecuting him, but we can't simply ignore the crimes and pretend they didn't happen. So on a related issue that has surfaced this week, Rolling Stone reports, Congressman, that according to some of the organizers of the January 6th insurrection, they were in touch ahead of time with certain members of Congress Uh, Republican members of Congress, Paul Gosar, Marjorie Taylor Greene. If so, what what's the punishment or what should happen to these members of Congress who, in effect, were helping organize an assault on the Capitol? Well, first of all, we're investigating all of this. And uh, and I think uh, on a very nonpartisan basis, all of us on the committee, Democrats and Republicans, want to get to the bottom of uh, everyone who had a role in that bloody assault on our Capitol. Uh, and we are not excluding anyone from that, uh, that scrutiny, uh, including members of Congress. Um, so, you know, I don't want to prejudge too much what we're going to find, but uh, there are a number of remedies. Uh, of course, whatever we expose can be shared with the Justice Department so they can determine whether 
people in Congress or out of Congress uh, have committed uh, criminal acts associated with January 6th. Uh, short of that, uh, the Congress has the power to censure members of Congress and to expel them. And so uh, there are a number of remedies that we can take, ethics complaints, censure, expulsion, uh, that Congress acting on its own can undertake. But I think first, we need to uh, to gather the evidence, see what the strength of that evidence, what the role uh, members may have played before we reach any or jump to any conclusions about what the remedy should be. That is definitely one of the things that January 6th uh, Select Committee will be looking at. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and finally, before we get right into the book, I, in your book, you talk about um, what an honor it was for you to work with John Lewis on voting rights in the House. Now, um, with this blockade and this failed attempt to get voting rights through the Senate, um, it, in your judgment, Congressman, is it time to either end or fix the filibuster? Um, absolutely. I, I favor ending it. Uh, you know, frankly, I would rather have U.S. policy engage in wide swings, depending on who's in the majority, than be paralyzed uh, and in a constant state of gridlock. I think gridlock is, is the absolute worst uh, prescription for democracy. Uh, and I also think it's important that uh, a majority of the American people can effectuate their will through the Congress, which is not possible either with a gerrymander in the House uh, or with a filibuster in the Senate. The Senate is already uh, unrepresentative of the country, given that 23% of the population controls 60% of the votes in the Senate. Um, so I, I favor doing away with it altogether, uh, but, a, but at an absolute minimum, the filibuster cannot be used once again to protect a new generation of Jim Crow laws, laws to disenfranchise people of color. Uh, and, and I do think it's going to require um, the persistent uh, attention of the president quite personally with Joe Manchin uh, to help Joe Manchin find a path to passage of voting rights. Uh, and I'm hoping that the efforts to take it up and seeing that it failed uh, last week are part of making the case to Joe Manchin and therefore the people of West Virginia that uh, there's no way Republicans are gonna go along with protecting voting rights because the Republican business model right now is, um, is to disenfranchise people. Mm -hmm. They realize their policies are backward and unpopular and the only way they can achieve power is if they get fewer people to vote by making it uh, difficult for people to vote. Uh, and, uh, and so this has just gotta get done. In my view, it's an existential issue in terms of our democracy. Okay, Congressman, there's so much news of the day to talk about, but let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll dive right into the new book, Midnight in Washington with Congressman Adam Schiff. Today's podcast brought to you by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. Yes, those good men and women, 1.3 million working men and women strong members of the UFCW under President Mark Perrone, they service all of us in many, many different ways at our big retail stores like Nordstrom and Macy's. The people that take care of us at our great grocery chains like Safeway and Whole Foods. Those on the front line and our meat and poultry processing plants, chemical plants, and cannabis plants. We thank the men and women of the UFCW for their great work taking care of all of us Americans. And we thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Go to their website, check it out at ufcw.org. You'll be amazed at all the good causes they're involved in. 
Being Home with Hunker is a podcast where we visit with designers, artists, and creatives in the spaces that express and shape their identities, their homes. If you love design and decor, if you're curious about how people live, or if you've been transitioning or transforming your own home, you'll love these honest conversations. Join us weekly at Being Home with Hunker. Visit hunker.com forward slash podcast where you can find, subscribe, and listen to the show. The people of ServiceNow live to workflow problems, and no problem is too big to workflow. Governments that need streamlining, let's workflow it. A veterans administration that needs modernizing, let's workflow that. Students in need of in-person learning, yep, let's workflow that too. No matter what monumental challenges you're facing, digital workflows can help you take them on. And now, ServiceNow is helping the medical community take on the greatest workflow challenge of our time, the challenge of turning vaccines into vaccinations. Thankfully, it's a challenge they're rising to. Today, with the help of ServiceNow Digital Workflows, healthcare providers are administering vaccinations safely and efficiently. They're streamlining the process and making getting a shot, well, simple. Learn how digital workflows are helping our healthcare heroes get vaccine off the shelves and into the arms of the patients who need them. Visit servicenow.com slash vaccine to find out more about their vaccine management system. And whatever your business is facing, let's workflow it. And we're back. Our guest today, Congressman Adam Schiff. He is a member of the January 6th Select Committee in the House and author of the New York Times bestseller, Midnight in Washington, How We Almost Lost Our Democracy and Still Could. I must say, Congressman, the title of your book, every word of the title and subtitle is loaded with significance. Uh, Let's just start with Midnight in Washington. That's an ominous title. What's that mean to you? Well, I chose it for for a couple of reasons. The the title comes literally from the beginning of uh, my closing argument in the impeachment trial. Right. Uh, When I I wanted to get the senator's attention, I began by saying it's midnight in Washington. Uh, The lights are going out after a long day in the impeachment trial of Donald J. Trump. And what I was describing was something that happened a couple of days earlier during the trial. When, you know, there they were in the Senate arguing to the senators, the Trump defense team, that you can't impeach a president for obstructing Congress. If a president obstructs Congress, you need to go to court uh, to to, um, prosecute the case and get get information that way. But in court, the Trump lawyers were arguing the exact opposite, that Congress could not go to court, didn't have standing to go to court, and that only remedies like impeachment uh, were warranted. And so they were were using these hypocritical hypocritical arguments and they had a filing due in court, and they waited until midnight to make the filing, to hit send, uh, because mm-hmm. they didn't want the senators to know about their duplicity in court. Um, and it was a perfect metaphor for all the dishonesty of the Trump administration and their defense. Uh, so that's how we began that closing argument. But, but I really chose it also because midnight is the darkest hour of the day everywhere in the world. But it's also a time where there's hope because you know what follows uh, is the prospect of light. And I, I feel like we're at midnight right now, um, but I also think we're going to get through this. And I, and I wanted the book to convey also uh, a sense of optimism about the future, notwithstanding the challenges in our way. And so the subtitle is How We Almost Lost Our Democracy. How close do we come, Congressman? 
we came very close. Uh, in so many ways, we came so close. Uh, we came close in that the president was intervening with local elections officials uh, in one state. Uh, and at one point, they held up the certification. Uh, and had they persisted, uh, we would have had a problem in that state. He was weighing in with state legislatures, legislators in Pennsylvania and Michigan. Uh, had they gone the wrong direction, we would have had another constitutional crisis. Um, we came within six seats of losing the House. Had we lost the House, Kevin McCarthy would have been Speaker, uh, and he would have succeeded in decertifying the election. Uh, had Brad Raffensperger not stood up to Donald Trump uh, and sent a different slate of electors to Georgia, or had Donald Trump succeeded in using the Justice Department uh, to coerce Ukraine, uh, Ukraine to coerce uh, Georgia uh, mm -hmm. into uh, sending an alternate slate of electors. It, there are so many contingencies where things could have gone so seriously wrong um, that we came very, very close and, and in ways that I think Americans could never have imagined. And one of, the, one of the reasons I wrote the book is that there's a lot that's been written about what happened in the Trump White House during these years, but very little that's been written about what happened in Congress. And Donald Trump could not have done any of these things. Uh, he could have not torn down any of these institutions the way he did but for the willing help of accomplices in the Congress, people who enabled all of this assault on our democracy. And I wanted to tell that story. How does that happen? How did people that I, that I knew and respected because I believed that they believed what they were saying um, come to abandon their beliefs, abandon their ideology, often abandon their own ethics uh, to support this immoral human being in the Oval Office? And maybe the scariest part of your title are the very last three words. It's not only how we almost lost our democracy, but then you add, and still could. In other words, Donald Trump may be gone, but the danger of Donald Trump still persists? Yes. And, and you know, here, uh, it, it just uh, is so agonizing to me that... Um, we came, we had an opportunity after that terrible insurrection, after the country saw to what terrible end Donald Trump had brought the United States of America. Um, the Republican Party in particular had a chance to cast him aside. Uh, and you could see uh, in Mitch McConnell a struggle that went on after the insurrection as he weighed whether to try to throw Donald Trump overboard. Uh, after the second impeachment trial, uh, McConnell took to the Senate floor to blame Trump for the insurrection. He wouldn't vote to convict him, but nonetheless, he would go and blame Donald Trump for uh, being morally and practically responsible for this attack on our democracy by broadcasting the biggest lies using the biggest mega, mega, megaphone. Uh, and he even uh, intimated that uh, there were remedies more appropriate for Donald Trump than impeachment, like prosecution. But it would only be two weeks later when he was asked, well, if he's the nominee again, will you support him? And his answer was absolutely. And in those two weeks, we lost the opportunity to move forward as a country. And what's happened since is that Donald Trump and the Republican leadership have used the big lie, have doubled down on the big lie to go around the country and uh, usher in a whole new generation of disenfranchisement laws but equally pernicious to strip independent elections officials of their duties and give them over to partisan legislatures and boards. Essentially what they've learned, Bill, from the failed insurrection is that what they need to do next time is if they couldn't find a secretary of state in Georgia who would 
invent 11,780 votes that don't exist. They're determined to make sure that next time they will have one who will do that. Uh, and, and to me, that is how we still could lose our democracy. Um, if, we, if we do not hold the House in the midterms and seven, someone like Kevin McCarthy should become speaker, he will vote to overturn the next election if it doesn't go his way. Uh, and if there are people around the country, independent, courageous elections officials who've been hounded out of their jobs, uh, and that's happening as we speak, and they're replaced with partisan uh, acolytes of Donald Trump, uh, then we could lose our democracy. And so it's, it's a perilous point. Um, I, I do want to say that, that notwithstanding those challenges, which are very real, uh, we're going to get through this. Um, and the reason I, I feel so confident about that is because there are millions and millions more Americans who are absolutely devoted and love and cherish our democracy than those who are trying to tear it down right now. In many ways, Congressman, your book is the story of two impeachments. Impeachment number one, where you were the, the in manager, the lead uh, House member presenting the case to the Senate, and impeachment number two with Jamie Raskin there. Impeachment number one, we know there were, before the articles were filed, there were some who said, um, look, the Senate is never going to convict anyway, so why go through this, right, the process of impeachment? Why? What was, uh, what was your answer driving forward with impeachment, knowing that the uncertainty in the Senate? Well, it really two reasons. The first is we needed to do our job. We needed to do our constitutional duty in the House, even if we couldn't be sure the Senate would do theirs. And uh, you can draw a very straight line between the lack of accountability for Donald Trump's Russia misconduct, for his solicitation of Russian interference in our 2016 election, his use of Russian help, uh, his lying and covering up Russian help. You could draw a straight line between that, which concluded with Bob Mueller's testimony and Donald Trump's belief that he had escaped the jailer for his Russian misconduct. And the very next day after Mueller testified, he was on the phone with the president of Ukraine, soliciting and trying to coerce yet again a foreign nation to help him cheat in another election. Uh, so the lack of any accountability for his Russian misconduct directly led to his worse Ukraine misconduct. Uh, and indeed, the, the lack of accountability, because he was ultimately acquitted by the, the Republican senators um, in the Ukraine trial, led to the next even worse abuse of power in his effort to overturn the 2020 election uh, and the bloody insurrection. Uh, but uh, first of all, we had to do our duty. And we also had to take whatever step we could to hold him accountable. Um, but also, and I was very conscious of this, um, we knew going into the, the, that first impeachment trial that we were not going to win. And I remember uh, discussing this with the speaker and making the observation that we needed to figure out how we could win by losing. And, and the way I concluded that we could win by losing is there were two juries we would be making the case to. There would be the jury in the Senate, and then there was the jury of the American people. Uh, and while we couldn't uh, expect to win over the jury of the Senate because Republican senators would not uh, uphold their oath, we did need to win over the American people. And I think uh, I would like to believe that the case that we made uh, in that trial um, did help Americans reach the conclusion that the country could not afford another four years of Donald Trump and rejected him uh, when it had the chance. So I, I would like to think we succeeded uh, in that. When you stood on the floor looking in the faces of those 100 senators, 
What did you see? Did you see people who were paying attention? Did you see fair jurors? Uh, or, you know, people who had already made up their minds? Uh, you know, I, I actually uh, saw people really paying attention. Um, and, uh, and, and in particular, at certain points during the trial, um, one of the, the scenes I describe, and I wanted to give the reader a sense of what it was really like to step onto the Senate floor and uh, to try a case like this. It's a very small place compared to the House. You can see every face. You can yeah. see whether they're listening or not, whether they're moved or whether they're indifferent. Uh, and at one point during the trial, one really pivotal point, I was preparing to make my summation of the day and I, I become, uh, uh, I gotten in the habit of every day, whatever time I had to summarize what was most important of the day. One of my staff stopped me and, and said, um, they think we've proven him guilty. Uh, they want to know why he should be removed. And it really struck me uh, when he said this, because what that amounted to was they were acknowledging, including the Republican senators, that we proved him guilty of withholding hundreds of millions of dollars of military aid to Ukraine in order to coerce Ukraine into helping him cheat uh, in the election by smearing his opponent. Uh, and, and they were still saying that, well, maybe that's not enough. Um, and, uh, and I realized what they were really asking is, why was he so dangerous to the country that they couldn't leave him in office? Uh, and, and so I set about to prove something that it was, was not part of the charges formally, but that he was fundamentally untruthful, that he couldn't tell right from wrong, that he was basically indecent, and you couldn't leave a person like that in office. And if you did, uh, and I remember saying that the chances that he would try to cheat again were not five, not 10, not 50, but 100%. Uh, and as I was making these arguments about the, the president, and I was looking at these Republican senators in particular, and I was making the point that he was completely lacking in any moral compass, none of them were shaking their heads in disagreement. Uh -huh. They all understood exactly who Donald Trump is and was, uh, and they just lacked the courage to do anything about it. Um, and, and I ended up you know, concluding uh, that there's no flaw in the remedy of impeachment. There's, there's no need to redraft that provision or make it a majority vote or any of those things. The flaws in ourselves, if we don't give that oath meaning, if we don't uh, give it content based on right and wrong and uh, operating on, on the truth, then none of it works. Mm -hmm. um, what I will say, though, what, what still left me uplifted at the end of that trial was listening to Mitt Romney um, talk about his faith and talk about how he had children and grandchildren to answer to. And that uh, he realized that in voting, being the first senator in history to vote to convict a member of his own party, that he would be, he would face a, 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 just a world of pain, but that, uh, but that he had a duty to God to, to, to give meaning to his oath, and that uh, he might be nothing more than a footnote in our history, but for any citizen in the greatest country in the world, that should be enough. And I, and I listened to that beautiful speech and then I watched the courageous act, and I thought to myself that Madison was really right, that human beings do possess sufficient virtue to govern themselves. Uh, and, I, and I still believe that to my core. And part of the price you paid uh, for doing such a great job, I might add, is that you were called um, by the president of the United States a liar, 
he referred to you as little, he referred to you as shifty, and he called you scum. What's it like to be called scum by the president of the United States? Well, uh, you know, I have a pretty thick skin, which comes in handy in my job. Um, <laughs> what, 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 what was worse, really, was there were times when he would intimate uh, or say directly that I was a traitor, uh, that something should happen to me. Um, and I remember he had a meeting, I think, with the president of Guatemala. Um, and during the head of state meeting, uh, he said that, uh, you know, gee, in Guatemala, there used to be a way of dealing with people like Schiff, mm -hmm. uh, something along those lines. And I, I wasn't alone in, in being the target of these kind of not so thinly veiled threats. Um, others, too. The whistleblower uh, was directly threatened uh, uh, by other things the president said. Uh, and, you know, it it resulted in a lot of death threats. And uh, and that, to me, uh, is, is obviously more serious than the, the kind of fifth grade name calling that uh, I also endured. But but I will tell you this, Bill, uh, the first time he attacked me, he called me sleazy Adam Schiff. And um, I was on the House floor the next day. And I have to say, my House colleagues were very jealous that I was being attacked <laughs> by Donald Trump. Uh, and uh, Mike Thompson uh, of Napa said, uh, Adam, uh, you should reply on Twitter, Mr. President, when they go low, we go high, go F yourself. <laughs> and, uh, I told Mike I didn't think I could get away with that, but I did appreciate the sentiment. Uh, Mike Thompson, good guy. Uh, Congressman, I know your time is really, really tight. Let me just ask you uh, quickly a couple of final questions. One, so then you say, moving to the second impeachment, which we don't have time to really get into, but you make the statement that you think that the second impeachment was even more serious than the first incitement of insurrection because because he was inciting a violent attack on the seat of our government and uh, and in casting doubt on whether Americans could rely on our elections which he continues to do this to this day by pushing that big lie he's inviting political violence if we can't count on elections to decide our differences or who should govern, then what is left but violence? Uh, and so to me, it doesn't get more serious than that. Uh, and, and just as you could draw a straight line between the failure to hold him accountable on Russia leading to Ukraine, the failure to hold him accountable on Ukraine leading to insurrection, should Donald Trump get another chance uh, ever to occupy a position of power? Where does the straight line go from there? Uh, and so uh, I, I, I do think that we would see in him and have seen in him serial, serial abuses of power, each more serious than the last. Uh, and God knows what could come in the future, which is why we need to make sure that that prospect never comes to pass. That Kevin McCarthy never goes near the speaker's office and that Donald Trump uh, never goes near the Oval Office again. Uh, and very last question, Congressman, just everything you've been through, everything you write about in the book from two impeachment trials to the insurrection and you being a target on the floor. Do you still remain hopeful that uh, we're going to be able to get out of this mess? I really do. Uh, I think when you're in crisis, it's hard to see how it ends. Sometimes it's difficult to see if it ends, but it does end. This too shall pass. Uh, I have every confidence that we're going to look back on this chapter of history and marvel at what an awful time it was. And we will ask ourselves, how could it possibly have happened? But we will be looking at it from the other side. Uh, what we do in this moment, though, 
will determine how quickly we get through this and how much damage we have to suffer in the meantime. Um, I, I paint a portrait in this book of a lot of heroes, uh, as well as the villains of this period, the heroes like Marie Ivanovich, the ambassador to Ukraine, and Bill Taylor, and Alexander Vindman, and Fiona Hill, uh, even people like Dan Coates, the former Republican senator from Indiana, who became the head of the intelligence agencies under Trump, but wouldn't carry his lies about Russia or North Korea and was willing to lose his job and did lose his job. There are a lot of heroic people that have come out of the last several years. They should be the ones who inspire us. Uh, and I have every confidence uh, they will and we'll get through this. Well, you inspire a lot of us too, Congressman. Thank you so much for joining us on the Bill Press Pod again. Congratulations. Midnight in Washington, how we almost lost our democracy and still could, Congressman Adam Schiff. Thank you, Congressman. We'll see you around the track. Thanks, Bill. Great to catch up. And that's it for today's podcast. We'll be back on Friday with our Reporters Roundtable. Great panel coming up. Gabe DiBenedetti from New York Magazine, uh, Addy Baird from BuzzFeed, and Hunter Walker. Uh, from Rolling Stone. He's the one who broke the story about members of Congress actually in touch with the organizers of the January 6th insurrection ahead of time, should they be found guilty, as well as all the people who actually assaulted the Capitol. We'll talk about that on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. See you then. With MailChimp, you get a whole lot more than a URL. You get an all-in-one marketing platform to help drive sales. That means you can connect your data to make more informed, smarter decisions. And you get powerful automation tools like our customer journey builder to ensure you never miss an opportunity to turn shoppers into loyal customers. So if you're ready to integrate your marketing and boost sales, get started today at MailChimp.com smartmarketing. MailChimp, built for growing businesses. Millions of Americans are getting back to work. CareerBuilder calls it the great rehire. And we want to help you get the best jobs before everyone else. CareerBuilder gives you the competitive edge to get the job you want, at the salary you want, with the benefits you want. We even send job alerts so your perfect job lands right in your inbox. Go to CareerBuilder.com today or get left with whatever jobs are left. Find your next job fast at careerbuilder.com. Got the cable news blues? Try Rational Radio, The Rick Unger Show. We continue with The Rick Unger Show on this Tuesday edition. You know, a lot of us have a lot of problems with the current United States Supreme Court. One of them, though, is becoming their inability to, like, make up their mind on where they stand on a critically important issue. And that is the issue as to when a police officer is entitled to something we talk about a lot, qualified immunity. If you are confused as to what I mean when I say they can't make up their mind, well, we're going to straighten that out for you. And we're going to straighten it out with somebody who's done some really good reporting on this, Mark Joseph Stern, who is a staff writer over at Slate, where he covers courts and the law. Hey, Mark, good to have you on the program. 
Hi, thanks so much for having me on. Happy to be here. It is a pleasure. All right, let's start with the most recent developments, and then we'll go back in time, not very far, to make it clear why they've got us so confused. We had two cases come down last week uh, that that really did not seem to fall in line where, where I thought the court was heading on qualified immunity. Tell us what happened. Yeah, so the Supreme Court issued uh, summary decisions in two cases involving qualified immunity where the lower courts had refused to uh, grant this shield to police officers. So when we're talking about qualified immunity, we're talking about this legal doctrine that basically says even if a police officer violates the Constitution, their victims can't sue them unless they violate some clearly established law. Uh, That means there has to be some kind of precedent with almost the exact same facts that shows that what the officer did was unconstitutional. And these two cases, the lower courts had said, actually, there are precedents that show that what the officers did here was unconstitutional. These officers did violate clearly established law. Uh, And the Supreme Court, by a unanimous vote, reversed both of those decisions, issued what's called a procurium opinion, so an unsigned decision, basically smacking down the lower courts and saying, you were wrong, the law was not clearly established, it is not clear that these officers violated anyone's rights, so their victims cannot even get their day in court, they don't get to put their case before a jury, the entire case is thrown out, and that's the end of it. All right, so I want to hone in on some critically key things that you said there. Uh, First, I want listeners to understand that everything we're talking about here is in civil cases, not criminal cases. These are people who felt that they were abused by police officers in two different situations and were suing for money to get compensation for the damages that they suffered. Now, the other key thing that you said, and it is the key to all of this, clearly established law. Now, bear in mind that the Supreme Court, you know this, of course, Mark, the Supreme Court made up this whole immunity thing out of whole cloth. And what they established was that you could only sue these police officers if there is clearly established law. And since there aren't statutes, that means you can find another situation that is virtually identical where the court agreed to hear the case virtually identical. Now, these cases, as you just pointed out, Mark, were actually very similar to some other cases, so similar that the appellate court said, yeah, this can go forward. What is the Supreme Court talking about? Does it have to be exactly on point? So that is the big question with these cases and almost all qualified immunity cases. And uh, I'll tell you, for a little while, it has seemed like the Supreme Court was backing away from that very demanding standard. Um, The Supreme Court issued two decisions uh, last term uh, where it wasn't clear that there was a precedent exactly on point. um, But the court said the officer's behavior was so egregious, so obviously wrong, um, that any reasonable person in their situation would have known not to do it. 
And that suggested to a lot of people, um, including a lot of scholars, that the court was moving away from this idea that there has to be an identical case with the exact same facts. Uh, unfortunately, with these two decisions that came down recently, the court seemed to move back to where it was uh, earlier and said, mm, actually, they do have to be the exact same fact patterns. And because there are minor differences in the precedents uh, and these cases, we're going to throw them out because uh, it's not clear that the law that was violated was clearly established. And, and that's the confusion I was referring to. We really did think that they were going to adopt a more sensible point of view. I mean, I don't know, Mark, you might know the answer to this. My, my my assumption here is that the reason that the Supreme Court set it up this way was an argument that, well, if it hasn't happened before and we haven't found out if the courts will accept a case uh, under the certain circumstances, then a police officer is not on notice that he or she could be sued. Was that the reason? Yeah, that was the basic idea, yeah. um, that there needed to be fairness to officers acting in, um, you know, moments of crisis doing split-second decision-making. Exactly. And and basically what we saw in last year's term was the court being a little bit more reasonable and basically saying, hey, if you behave this way, if you're in somebody's house and you see uh, a chess set that really appeals to you and you steal it, um, we're not going to give you qualified immunity on that. You should have known that that was not okay, that you are violating the rights of that person. Now they've gone back to that, that same standard. Uh, by the way, if you are just joining this conversation, we're speaking with Mark Joseph Stern, staff writer over at Slate, where he does cover the courts and the law. I don't know. You know, the whole point of law, Mark, as I know you know, is to create consistency. That's why we have a system that's based on precedent. So people will know what acts are legal and what acts are not. The Supreme Court has basically done a 180 here. How the heck is any police officer, aside from one who's willing to use good, sensible judgment, this is not what law is. You don't go in a direction and then a year later with two more cases completely switch it. I don't know what the law is now. Uh, so I think you're right, uh, but I think that that's the point because qualified immunity thrives in ambiguity. Um, when the court is sort of bobbling back and forth between different conceptions of the doctrine, when the court is issuing these kind of contradictory decisions, uh, it makes it a lot easier for police officers to argue that the law is in a state of flux, that the law is ambiguous, and so they cannot be uh, forced to face consequences for their misdeeds. Similarly, I think that the court is sending signals to appeals courts and district courts that if there's any ambiguity or any doubt, they should always err on the side of the police officer, that they should always err on the side of giving qualified immunity to the officer and assuming that they didn't violate any clearly established law. Simply by issuing decisions the way that the court did recently, uh, it's really warning the lower courts. Lower court judges don't like to be reversed, right? They like to be affirmed. But the Supreme Court is telling them, if you go out on a limb and you dare to rule against a police officer and you dare to force a police officer to face an actual civil trial before a jury for their misdeeds, we will smack you down and reverse you without even issuing a signed opinion uh, because we want you to realize that you 
made a huge mistake uh, by not giving the officer the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, I think that's very well put, Mark. Mark, in the very short time we have left, pick one of these cases, because uh, I want listeners to get a sense of just how obvious these are. Pick one of these cases where the court said, no, can't sue that police officer, even though that police officer did the following. Yeah, so, I mean, there's one case uh, where basically there was a guy um, who was holding up a hammer. And look, you know, when you're facing a police officer, you shouldn't hold up a hammer. But it was very clear that this guy was not in his right mind. He was standing pretty far away from them. Uh, He had not done any overtly violent acts before. He was in um, a garage of, depending on who you believe, either his garage or his ex-girlfriend's garage, and he was holding up a hammer. And the police officers shot him to death because he was holding a hammer. Look, I don't believe that it's wise to hold a hammer when facing a police officer many feet away. I also don't think it is a capital crime that deserves the death penalty. And I think that there were so many obvious tools that these officers could have used to try to prevent his uh, death at their hands. Instead, what did they do? They immediately pulled the trigger on their guns and shot him until he was dead. That, to me, is unreasonable. That, to me, is not constitutional. But according to this Supreme Court, no one can say it's totally ambiguous so the police officers get to skate. And what I got, I have to tell you, as offensive as that is, as you laid it out, you know what I find even more offensive? That that individual seeking compensation for that act never got their day in court. We never got to find out what were the circumstances. We don't know. That hammer might have been rubber for all we know. You know, everybody should be entitled to pursue it. If a jury wants to hear the case and decide that, well, the police officer did what the police officer thought that needed to be done in the moment. That's why we have juries. It's why we have exactly trials. Right. And to and do, I mean, ju- yeah, go Sorry. ahead. No, that's all right. Go I, ahead. Just to add a little twist here, the uh, audio on the body cam footage in this situation mysteriously went silent go when figure. the police officers claimed they told him uh, to drop the hammer. Right. Uh, so, you know, we are really going on the words of the police officers uh, from a cold transcript, from just a declaration. The, the, the right move here would be to put them before a jury. I agree. Have Mark, the I got to. I apologize. I, I got to interrupt only because we ran out of time. I mean, we're up oh, against a hard break, but uh, great story. I recommend people go check it out. The Supreme Court deals a harsh, unanimous blow to police reform and slate. Mark Joseph, sir. Mark, a great reporting. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on. We will continue with the Rick Unger Show right after this. Get rational. Call 833-711-7425. 833-711-RICK. Hey guys, have you tried Poshmark? Poshmark is the easiest way to buy and sell your clothes. Find your favorite brands like Nike, Lululemon, and Reformation at up to 70% off. Download the app and use Podcast 10 at sign up for $10 off your first purchase. Have clothes that aren't sparking joy? Poshmark is great for selling too. Stars like Serena Williams, DJ Khaled, and more have closets on Poshmark. Just take a photo, set your price, and earn cash. It's that simple. Don't forget to use Podcast 10 when you sign up for $10 off your first purchase on Poshmark. Elevate your everyday, everywhere you go. With the American Express Platinum Card, you can earn 100,000 membership rewards points after you spend $6,000 on purchases in your first six months of new card membership. 
Plus, you'll earn 10 times points on eligible purchases at restaurants worldwide. And when you shop small in the U.S., on up to $25,000 in combined purchases during your first six months. The American Express Platinum Card. Learn more. Cabin terms apply. As we continue to face COVID-19, we're now facing flu season. So to protect us all, let's hit this virus head on. Get your flu vaccine. Learn more at michigan.gov flu. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. This is Rick Unger, and I want to thank you for listening to the Rick Unger Show daily podcast. Now, to listen to the full show ad-free, go to rickungershow.com and click on Premium Podcast at the top of the page. You've heard the screamers, the shouters, the haters, the beraters. Now it's time to listen to real conversation rational conversation now it's time for the rick unger show and now here's rick unger welcome back to this tuesday edition of the rick unger show in the last hour we talked a great deal about what will still be in the build back better bill and what looks like it's going to be coming out one of the key issues as we discussed is what's going to happen with the child tax credit. This is something that I think is at the top of the list of uh, most people's interest in what could end up being included in this bill. One of the things we don't yet know is whether or not Senator Joe Manchin is going to get his way as he seeks to restrict who's going to get the child tax credit by trying to impose a work requirement as a prerequisite to being qualified to get the credit. Writing and reporting on this issue is Kyle Swenson. Kyle is a social issues reporter over at the Washington Post. He is additionally the author of Good Kids, Bad City, a story of race and wrongful conviction in America's Rust Belt. Kyle, a great report. Reporting and great to have you with us. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. So let's let's begin with uh, uh, making sure that the listeners understand exactly what it is that Senator Manchin has in mind. What does he want to see imposed as this uh, precondition to qualifying for the child tax credit? Well, with so much with this bill, as, as your listeners know, and I'm sure you've been discussing, is, is that this is a moving target. Things are changing every day. Um, but we do know is that Senator Manchin is uncomfortable with the way that the child tax credit is currently formulated and would like to have some type of um, what's been reported, some type of qualifications, some barriers, some restrictions upon the child tax credit program. Mainly, it looks like in the areas of a work requirement and it's also with a income tax or excuse me, an income cap right. for each family uh, involved. So, you know, we've seen work requirements imposed before, typically in the Medicaid scenario. They don't seem to produce much in the way of results. What does Manchin think is going to be accomplished here? Manchin has indicated that his concerns are about a depleted workforce, uh, that, that the people would rather stay home and, and cash these checks than actually um, get jobs and go out into the workforce. And that would hurt the American economy because we'd have a reduced workforce. The reality is, and, and my co-author and I you know, reported in the, in the state of West Virginia, and the reality is, is that in a place like West Virginia, there just aren't a lot of jobs. 
Um, and, and this work requirement would really take away this benefit from a lot of people who are really, really needing it, really uh, feeding their families with it. And it could really have kind of negative impacts uh, on a lot of people's lives. I'll tell you what surprised me. I mean, certainly you can always make an argument uh, to say, hey, we shouldn't just be giving away money. You don't want to disincentivize people from wanting to work. But there are so many examples right in front of our faces. And and you used one of these examples uh, in, in your piece, uh, talking about two grandparents who had to take over raising uh, their grandchildren for something that happened to the parents. The grandparents stepped in. They are senior citizens. One of them, I believe, has multiple sclerosis, so is obviously limited in the amount of work she can do, and and the other uh, can only work part-time. Under the mansion approach to this, those people who very clearly should be people who would qualify for this kind of assistance and who so badly need it, they would not qualify. Now, wouldn't you expect that rather than make a blanket statement, everybody's who's going to qualify for this needs to have some kind of a work requirement, wouldn't you think mansion would want to dig in a little bit better and, and point out that there are going to be exceptions to that? Certainly the case of the grandparents parents raising uh, the grandkids being one of them. Absolutely. And I, I would point out something else, which didn't really make it into this piece, but you know, West Virginia probably has the, some statistics show from the census bureau, it has the second highest in terms of all the states in terms of grandparents raising children. Um, that really comes from a legacy of the opioid crisis and a lot of the other health problems. Uh, also a lot of jobs, a lot of West Virginians have had gone over state, um, you know, over state lines to seek jobs elsewhere, especially in the coal and gas industry. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're going to be taking taking this away from so many thousands of families in West Virginia, um, Mansion's constituency, who really can't get back in the workforce. I mean, the family that we profiled, as you said, um, the mother, uh, the grandmother, excuse me, uh, has MS. She really can't work. She had to retire after 36 years working at a hospital. Uh, the grandfather works part-time at a uh, Applebee's as a cook, but at the same time, he has a lot of health issues. He has a pacemaker. He's in heart trouble. So the idea of, of throwing all these people off um, eligibility just because they can't reenter the workforce, it, it kind of boggles the mind because, you know, these are these are retirees. These are people who are not in the best shape to get back into the workforce. Uh, I think that's clearly true. If you are just joining this conversation, we are talking about Senator Manchin's desire to restrict who gets the child tax credit uh, to those who are able, willing, et cetera, to go to work. What we are talking about is just how many people out there need this kind of help who are unable to go to work. We're having the conversation with Kyle Swenson, social issues reporter over at the Washington Post. Yeah, you know, it's it's such an obvious case here. I It, it really does surprise me that Manchin, if he's serious about this, would not want to uh, carve out at least exceptions when he announced his desire to add this work requirement. Uh, as you do your reporting and you're talking to people in his home state, how unpopular do you think this position is when it comes to West Virginians? From the people that we spoke to, um, I would say that people really feel, um, at least who we spoke with, feel left behind by Manchin. And I would say not just by Manchin, I would say by the entire political process. Because <clears throat> you have to understand, obviously, 
you know, this is ongoing. This is a push pull and a tug of war. There's all these discussions and negotiations going on in Capitol Hill about what this bill looks like. So let's say Manchin moves forward, but, you know, he, he negotiates some type of uh, cutout or carve out for grandparents or, or, or whatnot, or people with disabilities, you know, that's all part of this, obviously these negotiations, but at the same time, if you're, if you're in West Virginia, if you're a family depending on this money, you know, you kind of feel like you're being toyed with that the political process is about this backroom gamemanship and necessarily not about your needs. And that's really what really came through, I think, in a lot of the discussions that we had, is that families just feel really separated from the realities of their lives are separated from these discussions going on on Capitol Hill. You know, they don't feel like politicians are tuned in to what they need. And I think that that's a, that's a really serious um, gulf that this situation really throws a spotlight on. Yeah, I, I really think your article helps to do that. And I, it's something that I hope they will take into consideration as they get closer to, to closing up uh, this bill, assuming they are going to do that. Uh, you know, of all the the suggestions, for lack of a better word, that Joe Manchin has made, this is the one that surprised me the most, especially, as you have pointed out, coming from West Virginia, where you have, you know, would you say it's the number two state in the country where grandparents are raising their grandchildren, and it has everything to do with the number of parents who were either lost, they lost their lives, or they lost their ability to care for their children as a result of the opioid problem. Now, you've got Manchin trying to make this job even harder for those people. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Just very quickly, Kyle, have there been any polls in the state to suggest any impact this has had on his popularity? I haven't seen any polls about this reflecting Manchin's popularity, again, because I think this is moving so quickly. And um, But I will say that people are paying attention. You know, everyone we spoke to from folks living in the cities of West Virginia to really, really rural counties they were paying attention to this. They were very much plugged in. They were right. watching CNN. They were looking it up online. They were really plugged into what's happening with this. All right. Got to leave it there. We ran out of time. Uh, this is something we're going to be keeping an eye on. And I know you are going to be also Kyle. Kyle Swenson, social issues reporter at the Washington Post. Do check out his book, Good Kids, Bad Kids, A Story of Race and Wrongful, wrongful Conviction in America's Rust Belt. Kyle, thanks for the reporting on this. Absolutely. Thank you. Happy to be here. You got it. We will continue with the Rick Unger Show right after this. Call Rick now. 833-711-7425. That's 833-711-RICK. Thanks for listening to the Rick Unger Show daily podcast. You can hear the rest of the show ad-free by going to rickungershow.com and clicking on premium podcast at the top of the page. ¿Con Prime recibes bombillas en un día? Edison estaría orgulloso. Mm -hmm. Orgullosísimo. Recibe rápido los esenciales diarios. Prime lo cambia todo. For 40 years, Michael Myers has haunted this town. He is the essence of evil. And evil dies tonight. We're gonna hunt him down and we're gonna put an end to this. I wanna take his mask off and see the life leave his eyes. Happy Halloween, Michael. Halloween kills, rated R, under 17, not admit without parent, in theaters and streaming only on Peacock now. This is News Source One Michiana, Elkhart South Bend, 